0: Well, good morning again. If you missed me the first time, I'm glad that you're here. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, You heard that from the scripture reading. This summer, we're starting a, a little sermon series as we go through June and July. Uh, We're going to study through Hebrews chapter 11, but Hebrews chapter 11 is really just going to be kind of a jump off place for us. And we're going to springboard off of some of the names that we see in Hebrews 11 and the stories tied to those names uh, from the Old Testament. So we're going to be exploring a lot of different characters this summer. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of what it has to do with us and our lives and how we live and how we function as a church. So Hebrews chapter eleven is where we're going to be this morning. And just for I don't know, I just feel like maybe today we should start with a prayer as we get into this. So if you would join me in prayer, God, as we come before you once again today, uh, we're blessed to be here and alive as it's already been said we thank you father for life we thank you for your word i thank you for the people of faith in this room who who really want to know you lord and as i have a, a great opportunity to stand before a room full of people and open up your word and share thoughts on your word and i just know that your word is living and active and powerful so it's not about what i say it's about uh, what you've maybe given me to say through your word, and that's where we find the power is through you. So I just pray, Father, that you'll be honored and that we know that you've told us in Isaiah that your word will not return to you empty. So I just pray that you'll do the work that you want to do on us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I guess I should start with a secret, maybe start with the tough stuff first. Maybe start with the things that might rub you the wrong way or maybe upset you a little bit. Step on a few toes, and I fully expect from what I'm about to say that I might receive some of those Monday morning angry emails, but I feel like I need to say it anyways. All right, sometimes you just gotta say the tough stuff, so I'll start with this Professional wrestling is fake. It's staged. It's not real. The outcome is predetermined. And if for some of you, if you're finding this out for the first time right now, I'm sorry that you had to find out this way. But I feel like you should know that. Uh, it's staged. Uh, it's easy for me to understand that. I was crushed when I found out a few years ago, but now that I know, it's, it's easier. Um, I grew up watching wrestling. I've mentioned wrestling here and there in different uh, sermons before, but recently I I turned it on the TV, I saw that it was on, my wife, Jessica, is already. she always says, no wrestling, the kids do not need to watch wrestling, even though I grew up watching it, but I thought, what's it going to hurt? We'll just watch it for a few minutes, and so we turned it on, and the good guy wrestler uh, started chasing the bad guy wrestler out of the ring and through the crowd and into the backstage. And somehow the camera crew was already set up backstage. And so they followed him backstage, and the good guy chased the bad guy to a dumpster and finally caught up with him. He picked him up, he threw him in the dumpster, closed the lid, and then at 8 o'clock at night, miraculously, the dump truck happened to be backing up to this dumpster. They picked it up and dumped it in the dump truck. And I'm sitting here thinking... What cheap entertainment? You know, what has wrestling come to? But then what I didn't realize was my three-year-old son was very upset. And he was going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And, and he thought that this bad guy wrestler was actually in that dump truck and something bad was about to happen to him. So for the next few minutes, I had to explain to my son It's not real. It's fake. It's staged. And I think he was really confused. Like, I just saw it happen. And I'm like, I know there's camera tricks. They filmed it earlier in the day, and they're pretending like it just happened. And uh, it was a difficult conversation, and all it did was prove Jessica's point that they shouldn't be watching it in the first place. (laughs) But I thought of that as I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 11 and this topic of faith. And what we're going to talk about this morning... Is what I believe, it's not fake, what I believe we're talking about is the realest thing in the entire universe, and that's God. And our response to God is faith, is believing in God and then living by that faith. And that's what we're going to talk about as we study and explore Hebrews chapter 11. Now let me give you a little bit of insight into the book, into the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, towards the end of The letter, the author tells us this is a word of exhortation. So many scholars believe that Hebrews originally circulated around the early churches as a sermon. So it's like the book of Hebrews is one long sermon. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, it's like this is the high point of the sermon. And you'll see, and a lot of you have read this before, a lot of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, but you just imagine this being preached and then you get to Hebrews 11, and you can just imagine the preacher sweating and just really yelling and getting into this because it's a pretty intense chapter. It's, all, it's known as the Hall of Faith chapter. I think Tony mentioned that earlier this morning. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I, I think that title is debatable, but the reason it's called the Hall of Faith chapter, we're going to see all these characters, and what we'll see over and over is this phrase, the most repeated phrase in the chapter is, by faith, by faith, by faith. It's a rhetorical device in the Greek known as an anaphora, which means the author got into a rhythm and stopped using transitions and just did this by faith, by faith, by faith. And so when we read Hebrews 11 right now, we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read a large chunk of Hebrews chapter 11, and I actually brought an NIV up here with me, so for most of you who have an NIV, I'm not reading from the NRSV this morning. Uh, We've already read verses 1 through 6 in our scripture reading, so I think it'd be fitting to go ahead and pick up in verse 7. We see by faith over and over, so I think it would be helpful because it's a lengthy reading if I got a little bit of participation from you. So if you could just read those words by faith with me as we read along this morning, we'll see how this goes. So let's practice on verse 7. I'll pause and then together we say, by faith. Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were their heirs with him of the same promise. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 17, and I'll pause, and together we say, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses, his parents, hid him for three months after he was born because he saw, they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's Eden. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the, than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward by faith. He left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with all those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And then it goes on with this great summary of all the things that they did, the torture, the the great stories, and just examples, and quick highlights. And all of them didn't receive what was promised to them, but they're waiting. All right, and as the summer goes on, we're going to explore some of these stories in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. But as we read through this, you hear this phrase over and over, by faith. And I think you did a pretty good job. I was concentrating on reading, but I heard some of you saying, by faith. And then you just see this rhythm that the Hebrew writer gets into. And I have all these names. So my first question is, who makes the list? If we call this the Hall of Faith, well, then who's in the Hall of Faith? Well, we have Abel and Enoch, and Noah, and we have Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses, and Abraham, and Moses receive by far the most attention in Hebrews chapter 11. But then we have more names. Rahab makes the list out of all people. Uh, There's some, some, you know, Joseph, and Isaac, and Jacob, and then Towards the end, when he's just kind of summarizing everything, David and Samuel and Gideon and Samson. And so we have all these great names. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's where you find their stories. And what he's telling us is these are people that lived and made decisions based on their faith in God. Uh, Several years ago, I was watching the Major League Baseball All Star game. And before the game started, They honored these four men that you see in the picture, and they referred to them as the four greatest living baseball players. So these are players that were still alive at the time, uh, and they were honored as the four greatest living players. And on the picture, who they brought out to the middle field was Johnny Bench, uh, Hank Aaron, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays. So if you're a baseball fan or you grew up watching baseball, those names probably mean something to you. Those names maybe spark some memories of your childhood. Those names mean something. What's the problem, though, with something like this? When you make a list and you determine who are the top four, and then you get on the Internet, you're going to see that everybody's arguing about who they think should have made the list. And in Texas, everybody was arguing that Nolan Ryan should have made the list. So there's all sorts of problems that go along with making a list, and the question that that I'm asking of Hebrews 11 is, who didn't make the list, right? We make a list, some people make it, and they should be on there, but who didn't make the list? Well, maybe you could rack your brain a little bit or scan back over the Old Testament, and you see there's certain characters that you think, wait a minute, shouldn't they have been on there? What about Job? Job has an entire book dedicated to his story in the Old Testament. He doesn't make this list, in fact, Job is only mentioned once in the New Testament, and that's in James chapter 5. What about Elijah? Well, he's, part of his story is referenced, but Elijah is not mentioned by name. What about Daniel? You know, back in January, we did a sermon series on the book of Daniel, and I love his stories. And something is mentioned about shutting the mouths of lions in Hebrews chapter 11, but Daniel's not mentioned by name, and neither are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Esther's not on there, Deborah's not on there, and then you could just go through and probably list several people that didn't make the list in Hebrews chapter 11. That's why I say, I don't know if I call it the hall of faith, but maybe it's close to it, but there's some people that that maybe should have been included, but the writer says, I don't have time to tell you about all these other characters. But the point is, not so much who makes the list, the point is what they did, and they lived by faith. And the point is, who they had faith in, they had faith in God. And the next question I ask myself is, were they seeking recognition? Do you think that Moses and Abraham and, and even Enoch and Noah and, and all these characters, Joseph, do you think that they did what they did? And in their minds, they were hoping, I hope, it's, I hope someday I make it into the Bible Like, was that their motivation? They can seek recognition, That maybe someday when the Hebrew writer writes Hebrews chapter 11 that my name will be included in the hall of faith? No, that's not why they made the decisions that they made and the sacrifices that they made. They weren't seeking recognition. They weren't seeking attention. They did what they did, and they lived how they lived because they were simply trying to honor God. And then I asked myself, are these characters perfect? You know, often we also call these people heroes of faith or maybe even superheroes. But I would answer that question with a no. I don't know the details of stories like Abel and Enoch because we don't don't know a whole lot about them other than the short descriptions we get in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. But then you get to Noah and you think, well, Noah had this little incident where he got drunk and there's just kind of this weird story in there. Then you get to Abraham and Sarah, and we see throughout their story that they're not always telling the truth, and then they have Hagar, and then the way that they treat Hagar, that doesn't always seem to be pure and right. You get to Moses, and Moses did a lot of great things, but Moses also had a temper. He was hot-headed, and he murdered someone. And then later on in the list, you see Rahab. Well, Rahab is known all three times in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as Rahab the prostitute. And you have David, who's only briefly mentioned, and, and we know David's story. He was lustful, and he had Bathsheba's husband killed. Samson was deceived, and the list could go on, and we look at these characters, and in my line of thinking, I'm like, you know, they're not perfect. They're not superheroes. In fact, I would say they're ordinary people, like you and I. It's just the one thing that they had in common, is despite their their imperfections and their flaws and their mistakes, they continued to live by faith. And that's the invitation for us as well, to continue to live by faith. And I think you could probably infer, maybe add on to this chapter, by grace. Because it's by God's grace that they were able to live by faith. So we take this chapter and the main topic of Hebrews chapter 11, which is faith, I'm going to dig just a little bit deeper and ask, okay, well, what is faith? In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the NRSV says, "Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen." So we're told over and over in Hebrews 11 that all these people they didn't actually see God physically see it or see the promises that they were living their lives hoping that they would maybe someday see, but they had full conviction and full hope that God was there and that God is real. So Hebrews 11.1, we traditionally call this a definition of faith. Some would argue Hebrews 11.1 is more of a description of faith. And based on this definition, we exercise faith all the time. Every time I get on a plane to go somewhere, I'm exercising a little bit of faith, right? I don't know the pilot. I've never met him. I don't know the people who've worked on the plane. But somehow, some way, I still pay them money and get on that tube and let them fly me through the air. And I'm thinking I just have some level of faith that somebody's checking their accreditation and that it's all good and we're going to be okay. So I'm exercising faith when I do that. I exercise faith every time I get out on the road and I'm trusting, at least to a certain extent, the other drivers on the road. When I study history and I hear names like George Washington, I've never actually seen him. I didn't know him, so I exercise a little bit of faith trusting that he was a real person. So we, we exercise faith all the time, even if you claim that you don't believe in God or people struggle with whether or not they believe in God. Uh, we, we exercise faith quite often. But you skip down to verse 5 in Hebrews 11. This guy named Enoch is mentioned. His story comes from Genesis chapter 5, he's a fascinating story, and we're told that he walked with God and that he pleased God. And then in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So most often when you hear Hebrews eleven six 6 quoted or referenced, that's the part that you hear, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if you go on in verse 6, it says, anybody who comes to him must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So I think when, when I'm probing, when I'm asking what is faith, I like Hebrews eleven six as a definition of faith. And really there's two layers of it, believing and seeking. You must believe that He exists. So there has to be an element of your brain, of your thinking, of your heart, of your emotions, that you believe that God is real, that you believe in what we're reading and what we're doing here. So there's got to be a belief, but there's also ha- there has to be some action. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there's something on our part that's involved that's involved in what faith is: believing and seeking. What is faith? Well, I also ask: how does faith develop? So, as a church, you know, we've you've heard me mention over and over. What we're focusing on this year is Christ in you, spiritual formation, Christ in others, who's your one, outreach, and Christ in families, like how can we help parents, and how can we help marriages, how can we help Christ in your family? And as we've looked at this, and then we have our mission statement as a church, make mature, multiply faithful followers of Jesus, and I'm reading through Hebrews 11, and I'm thinking about us as a church, and I'm thinking, how does faith mature, how does faith develop? So for the last few weeks, I've been studying all these different books and theories and child psychologists and uh, scholars who have all these different what's called stages of faith. And basically, not everybody agrees on the stages of faith, but how faith develops from childhood all the way through your adult life. And one of the most helpful lists that I found came from a guy named John Westerhoff, who wrote a book almost 50 years ago called Bringing Up Children in the Christian Faith, and then two authors named John Alan Turner and Kenneth Boa wrote a book called Hearts and Minds. And they take this list, these four stages of faith, and they develop it even further. So I found this list, these stages of faith, to be the most helpful and probably the simplest. And I want to share some of those with you. The first stage is what they call the experiential faith. So for kids who grow up in Christian homes, now I know that if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, it may be a little different for you, but if you grow up in a Christian home, the first first stage of faith is the experiential stage, which means that most of the significant people in your life are followers of Jesus, so all of your experiences are through the lens of Christianity. But then sometime around maybe elementary age, or, you know, give or take the age, it may just depend on the person and the family situation, you transition into the affiliative faith stage. And this is where the child starts to realize that even beyond their parents and significant people in their family, that there are people in their church and their faith community that also believe. And they're realizing that their peers are in Bible class with them and going to camps with them, and they just start to see the broader context. And they're part of a a body of believers, something bigger than just their own family. Now those two are kind of helpful, and maybe I can think about my own life and how I transition through these two stages, but what I find the most helpful are the last two stages. Stage three, which is the inquisitive faith stage. And what Westerhoff says is that Once you get into the adolescent years, at some point, somewhere, you get inquisitive. You start asking questions about your faith, and maybe even tough questions like, how do we know that there really is a God? How does God hear us? Where did God come from? Or maybe even questions like, how do we know that the Christian faith is the right faith? or maybe we look at the world and see all the evil and suffering like how can god be a loving god with all this going on and and as the child grows older or maybe getting into young adulthood these questions may get tougher especially as you have your own life experiences this is called the inquisitive stage and you have to go through this before you transition to the next stage But what these authors claim, and and I think it's true, I agree with this, is that we find ourselves throughout most of our adult lives going back and forth from the fourth stage and the third stage. And if you're like me, you've probably re-entered often here and there into this inquisitive stage where I wrestle with some tough questions about faith and why I believe what I believe. But the fourth stage is what's called the owned faith stage. And this is when, at some point, early adulthood, college years, whatever it may be, a child who's raised in a Christian home, raised in a church, goes through these different stages, eventually gets to the place where they own their own faith, and their faith owns them. It's a part of who they are, right? They've internalized the beliefs and the attitudes, and and even if their parents no longer believe, they believe it because they have chosen this faith for themselves. And so that's kind of the benchmark of spiritual maturity is you get to the place where this is your, you believe this because you believe it and you've determined deep within your heart that God is real, the Bible is the inspired word of God, Jesus is who he says he is, and then that changes the direction of your life. So I'm looking at my own life and I'm like, yeah, I went through some of these stages and I can kind of see this, it makes sense. I was in that inquisitive stage for a long time. I remember being a teenager and Reading my Bible and underlining things and half of what I was reading didn't make sense to me, so I'd go to Bible class and no matter what the teacher was teaching on, I would just raise my hand and be like, I was reading in First Thessalonians, what does this mean? And I would just I had all these questions. And I was in this inquisitive stage for a long time. And there was a significant point in my faith journey when I was in college. I might have mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. I took a world religions class while I was at ACU, and my professor stood up on the first day of class, and he said, he gave us a statement of faith, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God in the flesh. I believe that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back someday, but the teacher said, you're not going to hear me say that again for the rest of the semester. I said, because I want to teach this class as fairly as possible, so I want to teach it from the most non-biased perspective as possible. And so for the next three and a half months in my life, I studied all the other world religions. You know, Christianity is one of the five major world religions. There's Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, and Judaism, and then Christianity. So we're studying those, but there's a, a lot of other minor religions. And so For the three and a half months I was in this class, I'm in depth every two weeks studying a different religion, studying the parts of the world where people practice this religion and what this religion is like. And somewhere during that time period, I felt a little spiritually numb because for the first time in my life, I started really questioning some things. I was deep into this inquisitive stage and I started thinking to myself, wait a minute, Do I believe what I believe because it's convenient? Do I believe in Jesus because my family does? And because for most people in my social life, they believe it? And so it's just the easy thing to do is to continue to say and claim that I'm a Christian. And at the same time, some boy like me that grew up somewhere in India and grew up in a Hindu family around Hindu peers and a Hindu nation... Is he a Hindu? Because it's convenient for him. And so I was. my faith went through the, the valley of the shadow of death. I was really struggling and I did not know how I was going to come out on the other side. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of what that journey was like for me. It was a lot of wrestling, a lot of conversations, a lot of praying, a lot of thinking. But I'll just make a long story short and tell you the conclusion of it is that at the end of all of that wrestling and that inquisitive nature, I came to the realization that I really do believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be. I really do believe there's power in the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. And I believe it not just because my family believes it. It was like for the first time in my life, I had that owned faith. I owned it. And I realized, since I do believe this, undoubtedly, that's going to change the way that I live the rest of my life. And if I'm not living in to what I claim about Jesus and discipleship and following Him, then I'm living as a hypocrite. So once I got to this stage where I'm beyond inquisitive into the owned faith stage, it changed everything. But I still find myself in the, with an inquisitive nature going back and asking tough questions. And if that's where you're at, that's okay. You know, God can work through you in that. But the, one of the main questions I'm asking as I study through Hebrews 11, especially in light of what we're wanting to accomplish as a church, is how do we mature in the faith? Like, how do we grow? How do we get to a place where we're raising up, training up future disciples so that someday they will own their own faith? How do you, if you've struggled with being maybe in the inquisitive stage and then in the own faith and then back and forth, like, how do you grow in your faith? Well, there's a lot of directions that we could go with this. And one of the main areas could be apologetics. Those are great studies. There's a lot of great books written on apologetics, and I've read a lot of them, and they've been very helpful to me. We could go that direction. We could go different routes. We could take different topics. But as we keep it in context of Hebrews chapter 11, and we ask this question, how do we grow? How do we mature in our faith? I think what Hebrews 11 is trying to teach us and was trying to teach the early Christian readers is the best way to mature in your faith and grow in your faith is to walk with the faithful. That's why we have a list of all these names. That's why we're reading stories about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and even Rahab and David. And we're exploring all these different names and their stories because one of the best ways to remain faithful or to grow in your faith is to surround yourself with faithful people. Somebody asked me a while back, why are you still faithful? What has contributed to your life that made you want to continue to be faithful to Jesus. And there's a lot of things. Of course, Bible study and prayer and and the classes I've taken. There's all sorts of things that I could add to that. But the old saying goes, uh, faith is more caught than taught. I believe faith has to be taught. It has to be verbalized. But we catch the faith when we surround ourselves with other faithful people which inspire and encourage us to remain faithful. And that's been one of the biggest indicators for my own faith journey. I intentionally surround myself with people who not only say they believe, but they're actively seeking God. People who are living out their faith. I surround myself with people like that because I need it. I want to grow. I don't want to become stagnant in my own faith. So I need to be in relationship and friendship with other people who are walking a faithful walk. I'm friends with people who don't believe, and I want to reach people who don't believe, but I need a constant source of faithful people in my own life, and I think that we all do. And I think that's the point of Hebrews chapter 11, is to walk with the faithful. Now this coming up week, I'm going to be speaking at a church camp. I have six sermons to deliver after this one over the next week. So pray for me, please. But I grew up going to this church camp, and uh, this is the 30th year, so I guess that's why I'm speaking. And as I was thinking about this 30-year reunion coming up, uh, 10 years ago we had a 20-year celebration. The 20-year celebration was a banquet, and it was held at Texas A&M Commerce. As uh, so we invited everybody that had ever been to this camp to show up. And we had a great turnout. We had a great night. I wasn't in charge of it, but I was asked to be the MC for the night. So we're, you know, I'm hopping up there making announcements. We have a dinner, we have some speakers, we have this big long slideshow, and at the end of the slideshow, at the end of the slideshow, was pictures of all the baptisms that had taken place over the 20 years of camp. Every single kid that had been baptized. So it was a really neat way to end the night. Now, we had somebody scheduled to hop up and say a final word and close us out in prayer, but an older gentleman who had been to all 20 sessions of camp came up to me and he said, I want to do the closing prayer. And I said, okay, but you're not scheduled to do it. And he said, I'm going to do it. And I was like, yes, sir. So I had to go tell the other guy that he'd been bumped. But this guy gets up to close us out, and before he said the prayer, he said, you know, I'm looking at all these pictures of all these baptisms over the last 20 years, and he said, it makes me sad. He said, because I know a lot of these people personally that are now adults. And he said, a lot of them are no longer faithful. And he said, let's pray. And he closed the night out in prayer. And I just for 10 years, I've been thinking, why would you end such a fun celebration on such a sad note? Like, why would he say that? You know, like, it seems like you should just be positive about it. But I think what has bothered me the most is I think, you know, he's right. Maybe not every bit right, but a lot of people that we see that have gone through the waters of baptism in their teenage years as adults maybe have walked away from the faith or no longer faithful or maybe what their faith is to them is they just toss up an occasional prayer when things are getting bad. And, And that's bothered me because I'm thinking, I don't want that for this church. I don't want that for my own family. Now, I want to be there for people when they wrestle with their faith. I want to help people as they go through the inquisitive stage. But I want us to grow together and to mature to a place where we own our faith. And our faith owns us. So when our lives are said and done, when it's all over with, maybe at our funeral or maybe somebody's reflecting back over our lives, how will they describe your life? And this thought came to mind as, In light of Hebrews 11 is, would your life be described by this statement? By the statement we see over and over in Hebrews 11. By faith. And then you could fill in your own name there. So if you're doing that for me, by faith, Jody. And then could you give a summary of my life, what I did, the decisions I made, the places I went, and would by faith describe that? Would by faith describe your life. And if not, maybe you can make some changes so that when you get to the point at the end of your own journey, the only way to describe the way that you lived, is that statement by faith would come before it. Uh, this morning, you may be in one of these stages that we've talked about of faith, and, and if you're struggling, if you're wrestling with some tough questions, or maybe you've never believed, or maybe you're, you're interested, or you have some, you know, find one of our shepherds. Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody. You don't have to walk alone, and, and the response to an invitation doesn't have to be within the next two minutes. You could find somebody after Bible class or send an email, but if you're struggling, find somebody, and let's talk about that. Or maybe you're at a place where your own life, you're like, you know, I haven't really surrounded myself with faithful people, and my own faith is weak, and so maybe we can help you with that. Or maybe there's somebody on your heart right now that you know of that's causing you emotional pain because they have stepped away from the faith at some point. Are you praying for them, and do we need to be praying for them this morning? I don't know what your needs are, but we're going to sing a few more songs. We'll have some shepherds around the room. One will be up front with me. And you are more than welcome to respond to this invitation. Let's stand and sing.